And, okay, we'll start that. Can I ask, so this is a very rude question. Mm-hmm. How do I pronounce your last, is it Kandasme? Okay. Um, it's Kandasami. Kandasami? Yeah. Okay. So I'm sitting in a very exotic boardroom. It's an exotic, exotic boardroom? No, it's not exotic. It's not exotic at all. Um, surrounded by books, uh, many of them called The Gypsy Goddess by Mina Kandasame. Her first novel, and Mina is here too. Um, she's been staying in London in The Glory of Leytonstone for about the last month, is that mm-hmm. right? And we can talk about your... First novel. I thought I'd put you on the spot with the most boring journalistic question I could ask, but Mm -hmm. I I quite like putting writers on the spot in this way, Mm -hmm. is to ask, could you describe the novel for me, not so that, because I'm lazy, but also because I'm always curious about how writers choose to to describe it, not in a sort of blurb way, but what the book Um, means to you. Yeah, I think, um, yeah... When I, when I would describe it, uh, it's possibly the least preferable way for the book to be described because <laughs> it's very much of, you know, what's my agenda? Why, why was I writing this? But uh, to me, this is a, a story about um, the, the history of, uh, you know, the early communist resistance and how they were organizing peasants in Tanjur in the 1960s. So I come from Tamil Nadu. And uh, so the whole idea of how does communism work or or the fact that, you know, we still have, or the justice missionary in India. So these were all questions that I was seeing in life as, you know, being an activist. So you encounter them and then you just decide that this is a very, you know, shocking story because it's about a huge massacre. It's about the complete lack of justice. It's about how the system works against people and uh, in some ways the system legitimizes the need for a guerrilla or a underground struggle so so this is how I would you know describe it and it's not the best way for the book to be described <laughs> no well there is as you say it's a fascinating novel it's fascinating mm-hmm. to have it as a to, to have written it as a novel as a fiction mm-hmm. because at the very at the, at the heart of it I seen the inspiration for it and also the subject of the, the mm-hmm. novel mm-hmm. is a real life event and this is um, a, a village, and I'm going to... Um, Kilvanmani? Kilvanmani, yeah. Kilvanmani, and on the 25th of December, so in uh, for the Christian side of the world, so Christmas Day, mm-hmm. there is a massacre in this fairly small village, is Really it? small village, yeah, yeah, yeah. Can you describe him just in terms of the facts, mm-hmm. what actually happened on, on that day in 1968? So another... It's a revolutionary year of revolution. Yeah, it's a very, it's a very revolutionary year. So you have May '68 in France. You have all of this happening all over the world. You have the anti-Vietnam movements, and uh, uh, yeah, it's it was this whole period. But it's also the what the Nexalite in India would call the year of the Spring Thunder. So when the first revolution started happening, so I think it's this very crucial year. But what happens in '68 on December '25 is that. Uh, the village of Kilvenmani has been fighting against landlords, against, you know, against forceful recruitment into their association. It says, we're not going to give up the red flag, so we are, st- we are going to fight for higher wages, which at this time is six measures of paddy. And uh, 
they, this village is like really militant. It's really holding out, and none of the threat of boycott, the threat of violence, the threat of you know anything, police action, or is still they are unthreatened and unfaced. And then it so happens that uh, on this day, the landlords and, and the mobs they plan. Uh, they plan a kind of rampage. They visit this village, and you know, tragedy visits them. So it leaves forty-four uh, people killed. And can I ask who who exactly was living in the village? It was a, it was a village of untouchable people. Yeah, so Kilman Money was completely an untouchable village of untouchable people. Yeah, and they're working on the land, and they they, were, they were all landless. They were all landless. They were coolies, so. They were working in the fields and doing earning the, a daily wage, yeah. And doing the hardest work for absolutely no... Yeah, for absolutely nothing. Why, why did you choose to turn this into a, into a novel now? Um, I think there are, there are two answers to this. One is that... Um, the first is my disappointment with the kind of uh, fiction, Indian fiction. There are great Indian fiction writers, there's no doubt about it. Some of them are really really brilliant and uh, but the whole idea is that you know some in in part of it we become very lazy so so, so some of the writing is just you know the sari mango novel or on the other hand you have fiction about the mo- little people of my age writing you know so many novels that take place across airports or people of an older generation just reminiscing about cooking and spices and the food and you know have this whole nostalgia for food and stuff like that, and then is that a sort of particular perhaps a more Western so idea, an exotic? Is, yeah, Indian so yeah, 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 pandering to the exotic as as well as you know pandering to the urban Indian reader. So I I really did not want to you know write what was very safe or comfortable because I don't think I would be writing too much fiction. You know, I'm a poet, and for me the first four it was like. If it's something I can do easily, you know, a campus novel, you know, a novel in a university, I'm just not going to do it. Or a novel about this kind of a lifestyle where, you know, you're in another country, you're dating people interracially, you're having fun. It's all cra- It's all easy, but that's my life. And, uh, you know, when I'm writing, I want to write something much more that actually requires work. And the second thing was... Um, my involvement with the Dalit movement, involvement with, you know, actually translating a lot of texts. I've translated about half a dozen serious books. So, And that's how I started. So when I was 17, I was translating the speeches of this Dalit leader. And for me, at that time, I encountered these stories. So in the, the late 90s and the early 2000s, so those years, you had this extreme violence visited upon the Dalits. So... Somebody and the Dalit, was, just to, just Dalit to, people, on the untouchable people. So these, the, uh, just a bit, yes. Yeah, so, yeah, the, Dalit is the word, self-referential word for untouchable people. And so the thing is that uh, somebody was beheaded because he belonged to the untouchable caste and um, uh, seven other people were killed. This was called the Mela a Massacre because they just stood in an election. This was the time when Indian president was an untouchable man himself, right. but in a tiny village they did not want to give that power. So you had this kind of instances everywhere and it was like, uh, because an untouchable politician stood the chance of winning an election in Chidambaram, uh, about uh, 27 entire Dalit settlements or cherries were burnt. So you had this kind of everyday violence and then when I was doing these translations, I understood that it's it's a whole pattern. It's been happening all the time, and the most 
outstanding or the most worst or the worst carnage was what happened in Kilvanmani. So for me, it was very natural to be drawn to the story, to understand what happened, and especially not just the massacre, which shows how bloody the idea of caste can be, but also how the entire Indian system, the judiciary, the police, just works hand in glove to keep caste in, intact, you know. So it's almost as if the whole system wants to keep it intact. They don't want to destroy it. They don't want to do anything about it. So how how are they, you know, helping these massacres to take place? Because if there had been justice in Kilvenmani, if they had done proper justice, I don't think these other massacres would happen. Okay. It, it should have been contained. The caste sentiment should have been, you know, cropped and nipped in the bud. So this was one reason as an activist or as a translator, the story was like just to be bewildering. The other, I think the personal aspect, is, which is like, my father is from Tanjore district and he he ran away and came to Chennai where I was born and where I'm from in 77, 1977. So for him, why did he have to run away from where he was born? And so what's this whole idea of, and what is his own story? Because he told me like, if he lived there, there was no hopes, you know, if you were landless, if you were poor, if you were orphaned, all of which my father was, and if you belong to a lower community, you just don't have any hope in life. And he said, the only thing I had was education. So, you know, I studied and when I, he was the first, you know, person to finish school in his village, the first person, person to finish college. So he said, the only way I could ever do anything was to get out. Because if I was there, I was never going to be one of them. And I thought, there is something in that story, isn't it? And there's that, there's that stark dividing line that it doesn't matter whatever your personal achievements are. Is it once a, once a, a Dalit, always a, a Dalit? Is that how the society... No, it's, it's not about me. I think for me, my father intermarried, my father's grandparents intermarried. So in a sense, yeah, I, I have been quite lucky, you know, to grow up in a way in which we reject caste very consciously. Mm. And you're really a hybrid, so you know you can laugh at people. But what I understand more is that, uh, yeah, as you say, caste is not just about you know social station, but it's also about the feeling of looking at people as inferior or looking at them as. See here, what provokes so much of this uh, at this massacre? What provokes it is not just the fact that you know one grain of rice, you know one extra measure of rice is not going to cost any landlord, but it's the resistance that they are angry. It's like. How are these guys who are supposed to be our slaves? How are they fighting against us? Where did they get the arrogance from? Where did they get the guts from? So any kind of assertion, any kind of working class assertion, any kind of Dalit assertion, it's simply seen as, you know, a big challenge. And uh, this is the kind of violence that's, you know, then they sit it upon them. So. And this is connected in both in the story, and I'm assuming in both in, in, in the way you fictionalized it, but also in the actual events, mm-hmm. that the desire for just any form of wage or for any sort of uh, social voice mm-hmm. is tied to links with the communi- the Indian Communist Party or the Communist Party in, in India, is that right? Mm-hmm. And that, that's another thing that seems to inflame the landowners and the people of, of power, that it's a connection, it's that specific connection between, and the image that runs through the knowledge of the red flag and the power mm-hmm. that that has to, mm-hmm. to inflame these, yeah. these landowners. No, see, I'm not sure it's as much, you know, 
just the red flag or the pink flag or what what flag people decide to come under because uh, right now they would uh, the same landlords would have more trouble from the dalit parties who often use a blue and red flag okay. so for them the fact is these people are getting organized a b they are challenging us see they are claiming equality and for they are you know doing the same things that we do you know laying claim to public sphere laying claim to having their flag laying claim to having processions you know laying claim to being equal citizens so i think what inflames them is all of this I'm sorry because this no, is no. affecting no no don't 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 worry appa naapra pesren pa the communist party are offering on some level they're offering that kind of um social organization for the for those people that maybe no the thing is the communists were the first to arrive on the scene the okay. first people to actually organize them the first people to say you know to put an end to these kind of practices for instance whipping was very common until the 40s the 50s until the communists step in okay. and you this is like when slavery is long abolished you know what i mean and yeah. uh, just because this is not exactly called slavery it's not a black versus white matter nobody you know even trains their eyes on what's happening here or for instance only the communist of they had this degrading practice called uh, sanipal especially in east anjur district <coughs> where they would mix cow dung and water and feed it because it's humiliation you know mm. the whole idea is that you know we break not only you but we break your defiance we break your uh, you know we humiliate you so much that you're just going to die of shame or you're going to you know be and and it's not like you know the whole fact is everybody thinks in the rest of india the tamils are very progressive that you know they have led the home rule league or they have been fighting against you know a certain brahmin domination and you know they are very militant as well in all their uh, self determination struggles but the fact is the tamil psyche for some instance has preserved caste in its entire in, in its entirety so there even in i think um, it was uh, 2002 or something yeah you had this incident in pinniam where this man wants to punish punish a dalit and feeds shit to somebody else and right. this happens in yeah the 21st century so yeah welcome to the 21st century we still feed shit to you know dalit people untouchable people and i think it's it's there are so many laws in place the constitution condemns it but you don't see real change you know I was going to ask what is the status of this particular day in 1968 in say if you were looking at a kind of mainstream idea of uh, Indian history if you were a school uh, no, I never learned it at school I never so read it at school no it, is it not a particularly well known story in India or even in I was, uh, I'm curious about why you want to tell us is the no no I I think the idea of uh, you know when you go to school in India and when you read textbooks You don't read anything about Ambedkar who wrote India's constitution who was fighting for Dalit people's rights but not just that you know when you read about caste they say okay this is what the hindu hinduism about is about there are four castes and this is the hierarchy and there would be no reflection on the kind of violence that's just taking place all the caste violence outside your classrooms inside your classrooms so you know <laughs> there's this whole huge hypocrisy of the indian education system in which we never acknowledge it we just think it's some historical facet which is out there but all of us are going to you know like be really really you know 
following it, <clears throat> adhering to it, but just not referring to it. So there's this whole conspiracy of silence. You never discuss caste in the classroom. You never acknowledge the fact that all this violence took place in the classroom because that can, you know, actually, it's what you call critical pedagogy, isn't it? That, you know, you make students aware of what exactly surrounds them. So, no, it doesn't happen. So, how, how, so I, I didn't read about it in school. As I said, this is what I encountered when I was, you know, translating and working with Dalit activists. So it's something that I get, that's something that the untouchables or the communist movement would discuss, but not the others. Okay, so there's, yeah. there's a desire almost in terms of perhaps the <coughs> ruling elites that would want these sorts of stories just to be quietly mm-hmm. kept from sight. So is this, yeah. is this a motivation? This is, I mean, one of the things I was fascinated by your by the novel is, is it felt like a novel that had real propulsion, there was a real desire to tell this story, there's, mm-hmm. there's a, a palpable, I think, anger, um, which comes out in, in a variety of different tones, but was that one of them, is, is, in the most basic level, is to put this story into a, into a public sphere, um, admittedly amongst sort of a fairly literate uh, um, a, a, a readership, people who can read. But it was that was that part of the motivation for, for writing? James, yes, of course, yes, yes, yes. But uh, see, there are, there are two things, you know. The other thing is that what I often observe, just as I said, I find this lacuna with Indian fiction is also that, you know, when we talk about all these kinds of atrocities or extreme violence and uh, carnage and rampage is that it ends up only within, you know, NGO documents. It ends up in angry party speeches. It ends up, you know, being read up, you know, in in these alternative little magazines mm. where it's just this... But nobody thinks that, you know, this is a beautiful story. It's heartbreaking. Mm. It's cruel. It's tragic. But it's just a beautiful story that everybody should know. Mm. So in that sense, and when we write, I think part of, you know, if, you, if you're working, you know, like writing a pamphlet or propaganda is that... Nobody thinks it's it has an aesthetic of its own, you know, and that I think this aesthetic is something that we should explore. That this story is not something which is just to be, you know, said as you know a kind of lament or a kind of resistance or a kind of militancy, but it's also just beautiful in terms of the story, in terms of how how do you say it, and in terms of how do you get people who are totally unconnected with it to actually feel for you, to 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 resonate with you, and I think that that's 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 very much part of the way of writing it as well. I didn't want to, you know, I could have picked up one of the person, let's say I could have picked Muni, who lost eleven of his relatives, you know, this fictional character, so in the carnage, and you know, made him the center point and written everything about surrounding him, which I think is what you know which is the knee-jerk easy way of doing it Mm. and for me uh, I I was just thinking no why don't we do this with this Uh, it's a very um, challenging and difficult question to ask you because it's a very difficult novel perhaps to categorize it feels Mm. like it's a novel that is and and it's a novel that's self-consciously rejecting the kinds of categories Mm. it's rejecting or at least challenging subverting ideas of linearity and and even of as you say central characters I was Mm -hmm. I mean could I ask you again to perhaps describe why did you choose uh, the, the particular tactic that you did? I mean, I, I, I don't want to sort of. I think it, one, one of my favourite quotes in the novel is uh, "fuck postmodernism." Fuck this postmodern. Fuck this point. <laughs> but it's, it, it felt like almost a postmodern postmodern novel, a, po- a novel that knew it was yeah. it was doing these things. Uh, why did you choose these sorts of tactics? Was it part was, was part of it to do with the fact that this is a real event that you are turning into a kind of narrative? Was it important about the way that you say research? Um, 
there's obviously you've done enormous amounts of research both first hand you've gone to the village mm-hmm, yeah, yeah. you've talked to people but obviously also worked in, uh, mm-hmm. in other... well it's it's not an easy story to say and the other thing is that you know the for instance how do you translate an landless untouchable agricultural worker in the 1960s who speaks only tamil and to put his own into into a language he doesn't speak in a time frame he doesn't live in and uh, to an audience that possibly has never met his like and who don't know what it means to you know actually get into the field or you know that kind of thing yeah. what what paddy cultivation is about or what landlessness is about or what is the cruel nature of poverty indian poverty especially so so on on the one hand the, the, there was no way in which i could have written you know this uh, from the voice of one person and then said okay take it all because this material is as new to me as it is to any reader today so so in the sense you have to understand that you know this whole idea about authentically saying a story or to tell a story in the true voice is is just one way in which we're fooling ourselves who are we trying to fool so we might as well you know be honest about it and say okay this is what i'm going to do this is how i'm going to set it up and the other thing is that one is that i think we should at, at some point of time start respecting readers because it's it's wonderful to do tricks but also i think it's a flamboyance that comes from poetry because you know you're like okay this is what i'm going to do now come see me do that and so part of the book is very performative in the sense at least the whole first chapter not some storytelling so and the other fact that i find with novels that uh, yeah like you read kundera for instance or you read orhan pamuk or whatever they say on the theory of the novel is that yeah the, the novel is hugely european yes granted and they have done so much but i think we still should be you know pushing the boundaries pushing the boundaries pushing the boundaries because as a form it's it gives you unlimited freedom and i thought why don't you do every chapter in a different register you know in a different perspective and i think you get in one hand the courage comes from poetry because you never do two poems in the same way in the same register because especially if you're performing you don't want your whole old poem to sound like the new one you want them to sound differently <laughs> right so but the whole clever thing here is that you should do it for such a word count and it within such a space that nobody gets bored about it or you don't get tired about it and still you know fit the story within that because at some point it could be like oh no it's just growing too much so can i ask about poetry the the, the open that opening chapter which is which was fascinating and and uh, uh, there's a particular tr- tradition of of tamil poet, poetic writing which you have fun with at the beginning um glorious sort of alliteration that you then immediately slightly sort of mock as, as you're as you're sort of showing that you can do it but but was there a sort of anxiety you felt about creating a prose style the prose seemed to be a, a much mm-hmm. less well regarded less revered form of writing was was that part of it a, a, no anxiety i think for a first time novelist it has to be an anxiety okay. <laughs> you know it's not a bad word um no isn't it how fiction or kinds of develops in, in terms of uh, even with let's say english literature or at least what i was thought is that you had all these verse forms and then you know john bunyan comes along or who is the other guy francis bacon comes and you have his essays because these guys have actually now started writing prose okay. so how does it happen in tamil so you know the whole transition from poetry to prose in terms of you know written literature and then um 
so for me also it was this kind of transformation from writing poetry like this is something i was telling my friends you know my last book was 6000 words and <laughs> i got to travel all over the world <laughs> you know so yeah 6000 including the preface and the acknowledgments and all that sounds right and then you know you have to write a novel it's like 60000 words something was that so <laughs> So is is this a bit so is a part of this this is your was this a a, a worry sitting there? No it's 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 not a worry as much as the fact that you know you're engaging with something it's it's new and it's like Is it play I mean you're smiling um we should have a special podcast cam um to show you were you having f- there's there is f- this is obviously a very serious subject but there's I got the impression you were you were having some fun with approaching um, i was having fun with the idea of the novel and writing a novel and all of that yeah but you do talk about for example um that the self consciousness of the novel that there's moments where the novel seems to be speaking to itself and directly to the reader mm-hmm. um you use the word self as a phrase self sabotage uh, art uh, the idea of art disappointing mm-hmm. um there was i felt slightly at the beginning perhaps more than actually as the novel progressed there was a a little bit of anxiety on your part um about throwing throwing trying this new form that that maybe the reaction that you would um it might it might get you moving from po- poetry into No poetry. no I don't think it's about you know me as me itself you know what I have done so far because I think every work should be judged on what just it is okay. so, but uh, for me the the idea was so how do you how do you start the story do you do you choose a central character because i think why why should it why should a reader be just told uh, okay smith gets up in the morning he makes coffee then yeah and then he goes to his office and then he encounters this huge international terrorist scandal or something so why don't you tell the story of why did you choose smith and why did he have to be in this office in this particular town so what i think is that the reader at some point should also know about what goes behind like okay. and, and the whole process itself so that's why i put the notes there okay. and uh, and I, actually the last chapter was written first i'm not sure it's something i should say no no <laughs> yeah so it was written when the whole book was really really there then i wrote this uh, first chapter last yeah so oh, the first chapter I, yeah last. i wrote sorry that yeah i wrote the first chapter last so i i, w- I could actually <laughs> i knew everything that's that's there in the book so i could go around and put all of this you know the clues to the whole book and uh, also the kind of uh, and it it is also about you know chronicling the kind of experiments i did like and who are my influences for instance uh, you know like uh, this anarchist writer felix finian oh. and his novels in three lines which is one of the most brilliant his, books i've read his novels in three lines are in my bathroom oh it's crazy. They're perfect bathroom reading oh that's anyway reading come <laughs> on <laughs> so the thing is that it's that it's that kind of So I actually was trying to put the story like that and I thought a reader should know even if I didn't succeed even if I couldn't make a whole novel out of it the little bits I think it's like uh, with those books uh, he's interesting I mean, he's a fascinating character um mm-hmm. uh who was involved in in radical movements in mm-hmm. in in France and on the edges of lots of uh, different artistic movements but th- those those novels are fascinating that he takes a an existing form of these funny little three line mm-hmm. short uh, and turned it into sort of a, an odd kind of poetry um but there it's interesting reading them so many of them are, are quite violent um, mm. there's a lot of people being shot and yeah. shooting themselves or yeah. suicide yeah. and yeah. was that a, a model for for how do you, how do you approach a real life event that's involves the most appalling violence i mean it's it's 
No, I, I don't think I've... Uh, it wasn't that to, direct. No, no, no. Okay. I don't think Finian's influence was the rest of the story. But I was like, how do you say, like, let's say just this woman's story in this kind of, you know, this three-line format. So, no, I think part of the first chapter is also about the whole idea of, you know, what's the format that you choose? How Because it's not an easy story to say. And I didn't want to do the easy job of saying it, you know, in the most simple... Uh, manner and I also think that uh, this is not a very this kind of um, uh, I think this kind of m- m- what you call metafiction mm. yeah. yeah yeah it's it's also has its own place within fiction doesn't it that uh, this very conscious way of saying a story or this conscious involvement or, or rejecting kinds of stories so 